Welcome to Untangling Christianity, episode number 12. On this show, John and Greg attempt to diffuse destructive ideologies, unsnarl confused ideas, consider Christianity as love and truth. We hope you'll come along for the conversation, and you can be part of that conversation by leaving comments at the website, untanglingchristianity.com slash 12. You'll also find related notes and links for this episode at the same place. So in our discussions, we've been talking a lot about things working or not working. Or I've said, you know, in my Christian experience, I disregarded this idea or this way of thinking because it, quote, didn't work. And as I continue to mull things over and uh, kind of fact check myself, if you, if you call it that, or, or, mm-hmm. or just, just kind of make sure, you know, are the things I'm thinking about and we're discussing here, do, do these, are these internally consistent? Do they, are they on the right track? So anyway, one thing that popped into my head was something I read in an Oz Guinness book like 10 years ago. Christianity is not true because it works. It works because it's true. Mm-hmm. And it sounds profound. Mm-hmm. But what what does that mean? Why is it can it be a bi-directional thing or is it really only one direction? In other words, yeah. Well, you know you I mean, you passed me part of that that it's, it's always tough like I, I especially if we're quoting somebody, I, I like to try to go back and get the source as much as I can. So you passed me that a little earlier in the week and I, I took a, a dig around and I found this sort of quotation uh, being used by a number of uh, places, a number of some personal blogs, but also also uh, some, some sort of big, fairly big um, Christian groups. And so I finally went to... <laughs> If you don't have the library, go to Amazon. And I went to Amazon. And I finally found. No this, way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got it. The book is called um, A Time for Truth or, or Time for Truth. It is by Alice Guinness. It was published in 2000. And at least on the version that they're currently selling on Amazon, what you're talking about, the, the, the quotation that I saw kind of blends together two bits from pages 78 and 79. Now, and I, I'm just being particular about this because I don't want to misrepresent something, somebody. We are talking about a particular person. And in this case, you know, a quote comes from a particular book and better to get it right. And then we can talk about maybe like how it's been used because unfortunately um, on each of the quotations I've seen on the internet um, and a couple of them like using quotation marks, they've, they've misquoted him. So um, going right back to him on page 78 I'm just going to bring together the two pieces that are normally put together on the internet. And I think this is going to be, I think this is what you're talking about. It says, um, Christians today believe for various other reasons. And I'm just starting in a, near the bottom of page 78. It said, for instance, they believe faith is true, quote, because it works. And he puts in brackets, pragmatism. Because they, quote, feel it is true in their experience, end quote. And then he puts in brackets, subjectivism. And because they sincerely believe it is, quote, true for them, end quote, relativism, and so on. And then if we uh, 
go down to page 79, we get to the part where he kind of, he's kind of concluding this little subsection. And he says, um, with such a rock-like view of truth, and I've skipped um, three paragraphs, four paragraphs. So we could go back and we could read them all. But I, I've skipped them for the sake of time. I, I think I think we're doing them justice here. Um, with such a rock-like view of truth, the Christian faith is not true because it works. It works because it is true. It is not true because we experience it. We experience it deeply and gloriously because it is true. It is not simply, quote, true for us, end quote. It is true for any who seek in order to find. Because truth is true, even if nobody believes it. And falsehood is false, even if everybody believes it. And he goes on. My head's already starting to hurt. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's take the, let's take that original kernel that you you brought out. Right, the Christian faith is not true because it works. It works because it is true. What does um, that even mean? Can you can you break that you down know, a little bit? The, well, you see, and that's why I read the preceding part because I think we're bringing two things together here, and he wants to be. On the one hand, he wants to say, hey, listen, your experience is not the ultimate arbiter of truth. Truth is its own arbiter. As he says later in that, like the, what I just, the sentence I just finished reading, because truth is true even if nobody believes it, and falsehood is false even if everybody believes it. Well, I agree. However. I'd agree too. Yeah. Um, I think most people would. Right, you can get a lot of people believing that such and such is the case, and you find out later it's not the case at all. Well, they're believing it didn't make it true. Um, so far, so good. So far, so good. <laughs> um, I, I do, I do have some pretty significant. <clears throat> I do take some pretty significant issue with some of this. Um, and so, maybe I'll answer your question first. Um, what does it mean that the Christian faith is not true because it works? It works because it is true. Well, um, the good thing I would say out of that is Christianity working. Um, you know, it, it does matter that Christianity works, quote unquote. What it means that it works, like how we define that, that's another question. It's important, but it's another different question. But the idea that it works because it's true and not the reverse is, I think, trying to say, hey, listen, in your experience— Christianity works. That's great. But if you're basing your belief in Christianity solely on the fact that it works, well, you're going to have a problem one day because one day it may not work. And then what are you going to do? You're going to give it up? And I, I think, again, we've got a whole bunch of, there are some presuppositions packaged in that idea. First of all, that you've got a sense that it works off the bat. And I think that is that is the big one that I would say, I'm not really sure that a lot of people have that. If you do have a sense that it works, and uh, works means something like, you, know, so you see, and, and here we, we're into a different sort of problem, and I guess we are going to have to go into it a little bit, because the idea of, well, what does works mean? And so well, he's, go ahead. Well, no, and what I wonder what Donna means you're talking is, it seems like experience experience the term experience in air quotes and works <laughs> yeah. are almost they're 
I don't know that they're the same thing, but they seem pretty intertwined. I think so. Yeah, that's really. And good. I know experience is a is a big like I don't want to call it a hot button, but it's something very important to you. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, I, I think I think what he's trying to get at here is that you know the idea that we believe Christianity because it's true. The best reason to believe something is that it's true. And I would agree with that. But then the question is, what is the notion of truth? In what sense is it true? And I think Oz is much more careful than the people that quoted him. So I think another way of saying that would be the Christian faith is not true because of your experience. It's true because it's true? Exactly. Yeah, it's true because it's true. So he's talking about, I, I think <clears throat> the issue I would, I would, I would take, and I think he's, he's, um, he's been better than the people, he's done a better job than the people who have misquoted him and misused him. He's been more careful. But it's this idea of truth in, a, in an absolute sense versus truth in a relative sense. And, and everyone, you know, typically with, with, when Christians are talking about truth, they have this notion of absolute truth in mind. And on the one hand, so, you know, when he says, uh, when Osginitz writes, um, because truth is true, even if nobody believes it. Well, there's an absolute sense in which God either does or does not exist. And that, that is, it doesn't matter what you or I or anyone else believe. And the nature of this God is or is not like what is described in the Christian Bible. The, those statements are absolutely true. Right? At a certain point, God will be shown to exist or not. At a certain point, if a God, if that God is, manifests uh, itself to exist, then that God either will or will not conform generally to what we find in the Christian Bible. So that's absolute. The problem, though, that, that I've often written about is that this notion of absolute truth has to interface with me. I'm relative. I am finite. And here's where I take issue with what Os Guinness is saying above. Well, some would say you're fallible, too. Absolutely, I'm fallible. Um, but, but, but part of the problem, though, is that the issue, <laughs> the issue is not to become infallible. That's God's place. It's not mine. And if we look at the history of philosophy, we can learn a lot of important lessons and avoid remaking a number of important mistakes. And, and what I'm referring to here is the whole Enlightenment project of uh, trying to get into some sort of a neutral position, trying to attain almost some sort of a God's eye view of the world so that we can know truth as it is. We don't ever know truth as it is. That's impossible. To say that there's an absolute truth out there that either God does or does not exist that's cool, you know, and if somebody can't grasp that, then I think that's an issue because either God does or does not exist. There's, there are no other options. It's a binary opposite. Um, but in the context of what Oz is saying here, when he's talking about um, Christians today believe, and I'm quoting him again from the bottom of page 78 of his book, Christians today believe for various other reasons. For instance, they believe faith is true, quote, because it works pragmatism. And he goes on to say, because they feel it's, they feel it's true in their experience, subjectivism, 
um, because they believe it's true for them, relativism. And I think the problem that we have here is that um, when you put ism at the end of the word, that word is essentially being given the value of an ideology. That means that that notion, whether it's uh, pragmatism, subjectivism, or relativism, is the guiding principle for how we understand and value things. Someone who is pr- who is who embraces pragmatism takes functionality as the highest guiding principle. If it works, it is good. If it does not work, it is not good. Now, um, so what's your ism? I'm I'm going to try and keep away from isms. <laughs> I'm going with love and truth. And again, here's here's the here's the problem here. It's not about pragmatism, subjectivism, or relativism. It's about being pragmatic, being subjective, and being relative. I am all of those things. So you're advocating a mixture of all of them versus picking one. On the one hand, yes. On the other hand, what I'm advocating is backing away from this extreme notion of ideology. When we hear someone say, I believe in Christianity because it works, if we jump to the conclusion that this is pragmatism, we are making a big mistake. That is, that is something that you would only know uh, after a lot of discussion. Or you know somebody pretty well, right? And you say that they're, they're you know, um, they embrace pragmatism, which is different than saying they're pragmatic, which means they like things to work. You know what? I like things to work. It's like the example we had a little, um, you know, I was out looking for used cars this week. I saw a number of cars and I saw a number of different levels of conformity between the ads these people put out and what I really saw. <laughs> In one case, I saw a car that was totally different from the photo had a totally different mileage. And when I talked to the guy on the phone and said, in your opinion, if you were to cite just a couple of things that might cause this car to maybe not pass the, the safety, what would, you say, what would you say they would be? The guy said, well, really nothing. And then I got out there and he gave me a whole list of repairs. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, you know, it's not supposed to be a guessing game. You're supposed to tell me and uh, be honest. And if you are, then um, I might take you at your word. But if I can see you're blatantly dishonest, but the, the, the idea here is that I am pragmatic. When I go out there and I say I'm looking for a car, if one of those guys would have shown me a car with no tires, no engine, up on blocks and said, this is my car, and I'd be like, you know what, technically speaking, <laughs> technically speaking, that's a car. So in an ab- here's what I'm coming to, John. In an absolute sense, that's a car. Or let's say it had its wheels on and had its engine there. Right, but the engine's totally seized, no go, and the bearings are shot, and all the other things are wrong with his car. In an absolute sense, if this man says, "I have a car for sale," is he telling the truth? Yes, he's telling the truth. If he just says, "I have a car for sale," and shows me a photo, and I go out there and I look at that, and I'm like, "Well, well, you know what? The issue here is that in a relative sense, in a pragmatic sense." And in a subjective sense, you don't have a car for me because you know what I, you know, I, if I'm coming out there, if I tell you I'm coming out there to buy a car because I need a new car to drive, you don't have a car for me. So the reality is we've got two different registers we're working on and an absolute register, God does or does not exist, and a relative register on a finite register, which is where I live and exist. I don't live in an absolute plane. I am not God's equal. I need to have certain assurances. I need to have certain things that I can grasp 
and then hopefully in a certain sense grasp me, right? They, they have an impact on me. But when I go to a guy and I look for a used car with the intention, with when we both know that I've got the intention of driving that car and driving away with it, with a seized motor, shop bearings, et cetera, flat tires. In a certain sense, it's a car, right? It's not an elephant or a tree. But you know what? Functionally, functionally, so pragmatically, it's not a car. Subjectively, from my position as a buyer, that's not a car. And relative to everything I've ever tried, he might tell me this car levitates. I don't think so, right? This is simply not a, it's not a usable car. And I think we have to say that both of those are valid. It's both validly, objectively, absolutely a vehicle, a car. And from a pragmatic, subjective, relative position, from my intention, that is not a vehicle. It's not a car. It doesn't work. And it can't be made to work. Not without a whole lot of effort that I'm not willing to put in. Right? I want to come buy your car and drive away. I can't do that. So bring me back. Bring you back? I think we've got to do a couple of things here. First of all, pragmatism, subjectivism, relativism, chop off those isms. Because you know what? Somebody might be, might embrace pragmatism. They might have an ideological view that says the only reason to embrace something is that if it works. Would I think that's a problem in terms of that being the reason for holding Christianity? Yes. But if somebody is pragmatic, if they want to have a car that they can drive, if they want to have a Christianity that actually where, and I guess maybe, the, maybe another way of framing this is maybe what somebody like Oz would say, or, you know, I don't want to put words in Oz's mouth, but, but certainly some of the people that have misquoted him, I think what they're trying to say is that um, God absolutely exists. On an absolute plane, God exists and God loves you. That's great. But you know what? For that to be truth, and here's the catch, for me, it may be absolutely true, but some of these things have to, by their very nature, have purchase in me. And particularly where they are relational realities, it is impossible for that truth to not also be perceptible as truth for me. You know, God may have certain qualities and characteristics. Um, God is, you know, we often put it in the Greek terms, you know, omniscient, all-powerful, all-knowing. Um, I think there are probably better ways of framing that, but God can perceive all things. I, I'm not very going to have a sense of that, right? I'm never going to kind of, God's not going to like sort of take me behind God's eyes as it were and kind of show me. I, I, I don't think that at any point I would ever have the capacity to even barely conceive of that notion. Um, but it may be true. I'm never going to have that, but I don't necessarily need that. But when it comes to something like God's love, and when it comes to something like God loving me in the specificity of who I am, that is a reality which cannot remain an absolute truth. It must become a truth which is perceptible, graspable by me, and which becomes a reality that is embraced that I embraced for me. But some would say that's where faith comes in, right? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. If people are going on faith that God loved them and they think that they've got zero kind of indication of that and they can look around them and they've got zero indication in other people's lives, then I think they should get out of it. 
Like what, what, what would you say to some, what would you say to somebody? You see, this is the problem with Christianity. This, this, this really deeply bothers me. If you talk to somebody who's a Christian and you talk to them about why, um, Harry Krishna's should, should embrace Christianity, they will tell you, listen, the realities of these things that you're experiencing, I mean, they're just not there, right? There's, it's not true on a number of levels. And they might, in some of those levels, they would probably articulate the idea that people are loved and the importance of love. And if somebody said to, 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 to a Harry Krishna, you know, what, what are the, the, the kind of the main principles? And I'm, I'm picking Harry Krishna totally out of the air, totally out of the air without being ignorant about their belief set, admittedly. But what are the principles that, that, that are to be, um, guiding you as a Harry Krishna? And what are the main reasons that, that Harry Krishna's believe as they do and someone would say you know well that that we there's a we're deeply loved by by this god and 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 someone would say well and how do you experience that well i don't experience that and they might say well you know here here's my experience and here's the experience in my community and after a long relationship or a, you know a significant relationship that person might experience those things too and say you know what in my context i believe this but it was false because it wasn't there in your context i can see that it is there there's something to it. So when someone says to me, you know, I believe in God's love by faith, I don't even understand what that means. Can, can you explain that to me? Like what, what, what would that mean to you? Yeah, I think that's, that's part of the place I think I've gotten stuck because it was, it was held out as As if you're not experience, if well, it's, see, it comes back to in my quote experience. It comes back to not placing a very low value on our experiences and our ability to trust those experiences because experiences are equated with emotions and emotions and feelings cannot be completely trusted. That's the, that's coming from my background. I don't know that I can cite any specific source and because you can't completely trust those things when the quote feelings aren't there, that's when you switch over to quote absolute truth and the truth of quote the Bible, the quote truth of the Bible. And that's where you just kind of have to name it and claim it, you know, have faith. And for me, that hasn't quote worked, which is why we're having a lot of these conversations, (laughs) (laughs) which took me. Yeah. Which is the whole thing of it not working again. That's how that kind of, earlier in the week kind of popped into my head as like, Ooh, am I, you know, am I, am I committing some errors here or, or, or putting things together the wrong way and insisting that it quote work? Right. Well, you know, maybe, maybe part of the, the part of the road we need to walk down. If, if that's somebody's perspective is to say, well, you know, do you think, that a relationship with God is completely different than a relationship with human being with a human being. Now, if someone said yes, I would want to explore that, and I would be I would definitely not hold that opinion. I would I would argue against that opinion because I, I think that the text says the text. I mean, there's so many we talked about uh, in a recent podcast. We talked about Francis Chan citing the 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 kind of uh, verse in Matthew. 
about, you know, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does God know how to give good gifts to you? Right? In other words, the Bible itself is drawing parallels between what it is to be in right relationship as a human being and what it is to be in right relationship as a human with God. That there's a love relationship that takes place and that love relationship is understandable. It is exemplary. It is how much more, right? It is superlative with God. There are differences and distinctions, but they are not distinctions. Well, okay. I think there are some distinctions in kind, but, but there are a lot of similarities in kind, even if there are differences in intensity, duration, etc. Right? Um, those are big differences. But the reason that they're not differences in kind is because, A, we use the same word. I love my kids. I love God. B, if I'm going to understand it, I have to be able to have a framework for understanding it. And really, if, if this thing is so vastly different, this, the context of the, the, the glue between me and God is so vastly different than love, then we should not be using the word love. That, it's, that's confusing. Right? I mean, pure and simple. We, we, we're using the word because that's what it is. The text is using that word. It's, it's, it's translated into English properly. Right? And, and that's the notion of, of what this glue is, what this relational bond is between us and God. And the, you know, in a, in a, in a human context, you might ask the question uh, to someone who's getting married, um, do you love this person? And of course, that question is a stupid question. <laughs> Because, well, generally it is, right? In cultures where we make our own choices for marriage, hopefully that's a redundant question. It's an unnecessary question, right? We might ask, how do you love them? Why do you love them? When did you fall in love? But we wouldn't typically question the idea that they love. And because that's the glue, that's the reason, that is the basis of the relationship, right? Marriage is fundamentally a love relationship as opposed to a business partnership, as opposed to a master and slave role or some other type of relationship, right? It's, it's a relationship based on love and it but, comes out of love. Yeah, and I think, I think there's a lot of other dimensions that people would bring in though. I mean, you mentioned, <laughs> you mentioned slave master. Um, you know, Mr. Eidelman believes that that's the core of it. That's the crux of it. Other people would say, well, God is divine and we aren't. And yeah, we have a relationship with him, but I mean, come on. He's, he's the ruler of the universe. He's not our pal. He's holy and we aren't. And all these other different, I, I guess I'm hearing the, those are the objections and and the kind of the counterpoints that I would typically hear. Okay, what, what, how I feel about all those, I don't know. I, I don't know how to bring them all together. Well, I think I think they're good to you, you know you've you've got to kind of uh, maybe face up to them or respond to them. But I mean, this idea of of pal, I think is uh, I would just kind of throw that out right away. I don't think my my marriage partner is my pal. <laughs> Fair point. Right, my my pal pisses me off enough. I'm going to say, hey, you know what? We got some problems here. We got maybe irreconcilable problems. Or my pal sounds like my acquaintance. This isn't an acquaintance level relationship, right? Um, in terms of uh, 
um, God being the, the ruler of the universe and, and God being holy. I mean, I, I think people's theology needs to actually, you see, this is, this is where some of these, the minor themes are dominating the major theme. The major theme, if you are a Christian and the New Testament is important to you, and I'm not trying to be facetious or, uh, or, or blackmail people, Right, but the 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 number one priority, as laid out in that text, unless people are finding something that I'm not seeing, and I really don't think so. I don't think there's anything else there, is to love God completely, to love ourselves rightly, and to love our our neighbor rightly in response. This is what this is where it all comes what it all comes down to. So the notion, see, and this is where I think there are so many mistakes. You know, God is holy, and there's such a difference in gulf between me and God. Well, you know what? If you want to find mystery, if you want to find wonder, uh, and, and you're really kind of overtaken with this idea of God being holy, etc., um, maybe there is a lot of wonder there and a lot of mystery there for you. But to f- with the fact that this holy God loves you, as Brennan Manning would say, furiously. There's a furious desire. There's a potent desire. But, but it's there. It is, it is there. And if that number one priority does not settle in with your number one best understanding of who God is, you've got God wrong. You're not reading that text either carefully or you're being selective. And you're selecting out what is ostensibly the most important. So the idea that God is holy that God is the ruler of the universe and that precludes God's love, I think people uh, are, are letting uh, uh, lesser themes dominate major themes, and that's a mistake. Does the whole thing have to make sense? Does God loving me have to make sense in light of God's holiness and God being also sovereign? Yes. But I mean, I think typically when people tell me about, you know, there's an emphasis on holiness, there's an emphasis on, on, on sovereignty, there's a forgetfulness about parenthood and fatherhood. There's a deep forgetfulness or probably more likely there's a deep experiential ignorance. It's not something that's been real to them. And probably, probably it's not something that's been real in their community because I'm not suggesting on the one hand that everybody has to have the same deep experiences of God's love. On the other hand, I am suggesting that in Christian communities, there are various experiences of this. There are various levels of interaction and various, if you like, almost gifts in terms of God relating to different individuals in different ways that those individuals then take out into their community. Because what's the second commandment? Well, love yourself rightly and love your neighbor out of that. Love your neighbor likewise. And part of that neighbor loving that goes on and part of the the right loving of oneself is to take those things and take them out, right? So if somebody is so caught up on this idea of uh, the holiness of God the sovereignty of God, I would say, hey, you know what? Try to get caught up on the idea of God as parent, God as father. Because this love principle, unless you've got other texts that kind of run over top of it, and I'm not trying to be silly, but I think this is really important. It's really important to push this button of top priority and say, you know what? If you're confused as a Christian, or if you're getting a message of God's sovereignty, God's sovereignty, God's sovereignty, um, you know what? in terms of what's supposed to be directing your relationship and indicative of that relationship, you do not have the top message. You do not have the right priority. It is a priority, 
It is not the top priority. So how do you know that you haven't made the priority wrong yourself? Let's let, hey, let's let's go and take a read. Let's go jump in there. One sec. I mean, you tell me what you think, right? This is I know what I've made of it. Okay. I mean, I guess what I'm wondering is, I think I know where you're going, but like, do does a does a case need to be made? For using that passage, I, I, what's kind of coming to me a little bit is we've been very critical of people taking certain passages and saying, you know, this is the end all be all or mm-hmm. the where you spend eternity is the number one question you have to answer. That's kind of the end all be all. So what I'm hearing you say a little bit is that, you know, the greatest commandment is the end all be all. How do you, how do you know that you're reading that rightly and that that really is kind of your end all be all? Or am I putting too many words in your mouth? No, no, that's good. I like that. Um, I mean, if you so reading it rightly, I'll, I'll take that like in the in the exegetical sense. I, I would say that I know of no disagreement exegetically, no significant disagreement on the on the meaning of these passages. Um, number one, number two. This passage is included in all of the synop- all of the synoptic gospels. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have it. Now, just because something is only included in one doesn't mean it's one third as important as something that's included in three. But um, there is some significance to the fact that that you know this is included in each of them. So on the one hand, I think what it's being what's being said is clear. Um, on the other hand. Um, I'm not <clears throat> taking a passage that occurs in, in, in all three uh, synoptic gospels and saying, well, by virtue of how I feel about it, or by virtue of its occurrence three times, um, this is a top priority. Th- there is nowhere else that I know of in the text that says, this is your top priority. Right? Jesus was uh, in the gospels is recorded as very clearly as sort of saying, you know, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So the the role of Jesus in in bringing about the kingdom of God, that action, that uh, inauguration of the kingdom is in fulfillment of the scriptures. And and what are the scriptures? In what essentially is being fulfilled? And he's he's very clear. He's very the gospel writers record a, a very succinct presentation. So on the one hand, there's no doubt exegetically, no significant doubt that I know of at all. Um, the text itself is saying this. Um, and, 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 you know, it's, it's important enough that the gospel writers are including it in each of the synoptic gospels. Um, you know, the lack of its occurrence in John, John is fairly unique. There's not a lot of crossover with John and John's doing different things than the synoptic gospel writers are doing in his writing. Let me, let me read this to you, you know? Um, so it occurs in, uh, Matthew 22, 37, and I'm just going to read, I would read uh, a couple verses either side of it. Mark 12, 30 and uh, Luke uh, 10, 25. And they're, you know, it's interesting. We'll just read them in Matthew 22, beginning at verse 34. When Pharisees heard that he, meaning Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He, being Jesus, said to him, 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. All the law and the prophets, everything. I'm, I'm just going to be brief because I could, I could read more, right? But uh, on either side of, uh, or following that verse, but we'll go to 12. Um, <clears throat> this is, uh, pardon me, go to Mark 12. Beginning at verse 28, one of the scribes came near and heard them disputing with another. And seeing that he, being Jesus, answered them well, he asked, which commandment is the first of all? Jesus answered, the first is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now, I'll actually read the next couple of verses here. This is interesting. Then the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and beside him there is no other. And, and he's quoting, to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself. This is much more important than the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Uh, and again, remembering our kind of the, recently we've talked about the importance of the kingdom of God and Jesus coming to promote the kingdom of God. And this is verse 34, the last verse I'll read. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, that the scribe answered back wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one dared to ask him any question. And finally in Luke, um, Luke verse 25, then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. And lawyer being a, you know, um, more of a uh, religious uh, vocation than a, um, you know, uh, a secular vocation, a legal, like a, 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 a scribe. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He, being Jesus, said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, the scribe answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he, being Jesus, said to him, you've given the right answer. Do this and you will live. And in, in Luke, this is interesting, this is where it goes into the, the Good Samaritan, uh, because uh, but wanting just to justify himself, uh, the scribe said, asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus goes on to tell the story. But, but for, for me, um, I, I have, uh, I feel no sense of anxiety and no sense of doubt that these are the greatest, the highest priorities that Christians around which or following which Christians are to orient what it means for them to be Christian, what it means to follow Christ. And, um, and again, when the, when, the, when the text itself gives examples of how God's love is like our love, greater, better, etc., uh, doesn't knows no end, does not fluctuate or fail, uh, but is like our love. It is like a parent loving a child. Um, we have very good reason to believe that we should be not like this. Isn't just an idea to be understood, right? If it, 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 love love is not like that. Love is not an idea in the mind. It is a relational reality to be lived and embraced between between people, or in this case between people and God. 
So, you know, if we come back to, uh, if we come back to Oz Guinness, um, I would say that the, the, the truth of Christianity, where we're talking about truth, um, it's not true because we experience it. We experience it deeply and gloriously because it is true. I would agree with Oz insofar as we experience it. You know, and if you're not experiencing the love of God, then, then number one, number one, there is a problem. What that problem is and where that problem lies and what fixing it entails those are important questions and we dig, need to dig a little deeper. But the reality is we should be experiencing that. If we are not experiencing that, then that's something that within a Christian community, you know, um, John, we talked about John being a little different uh, than uh, the other, uh, uh, than the gospels, the other synoptic gospels. I mean, the, the, the prevalence of the notion that uh, we are to love one another and that that is what it means to be a Christian and, and that people will know us by that. And I'm including also some of John's letters, right? First uh, uh, John, for example, the epistles. But this is crucial, right? The love of God is something that we experience through each other. We experience uh, in, in various contexts. But to say that, that you don't have an experience of that, I think is highly problematic. And I think the only reason, and and this is maybe a big one, but when you told, when you said to me, you know, I, this is where faith comes in and you can't trust your experiences. The thought that comes to my mind is these are words of someone who has been brought up in a context of being Christian, not a person who has come to that context as someone who has lived enough of life to say life is typically like this. They say that again. Well, the point I'm making, and it's, um, it's a big one, is that I think a lot of these perspectives are held by people who are born in Christian homes, who are raised in Christian subcultures, and for whom the idea of being a Christian is not an option or a choice. It is just what is. You could obviously choose otherwise. Well, yeah, it is. It is what is because it's true. But it's true because it's true. It's true because it's there and it's there because it's true. Oh, my head hurts again. Well, it's both, you see, and I guess the Christian faith is true because it works, and it works because it's true. So I would change what Os Guinness has said. I think what he said here is incorrect. I would say, in other words, that if, if there is, if, if everyone in a community, in a, in a church community, if you can go to those people and you can ask them why they believe in God and what, 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 what experiences they've had of God loving them, and, and they come up with, and they're kind of... Um, floundering to give you answers. I would, I would want, what are you doing here? In other words, do you believe because this is part of your culture? Is this a cultural or a sociological phenomena? Or is there really a God out there? Yeah. You know? my, in my, my quote experience, I know we're using that word in a lot of different ways. <laughs> See, my experience there would be, well, it's, yeah, it all comes back to it being true. It doesn't matter necessarily what I've experienced or how I feel. What really matters is that it's true, and it's not only true, it's biblical truth, because it's from the Bible, and and it's not just some warm, fuzzy feeling I had that 
God is love and that he loves me, it's based on the Bible. It's based on something outside of myself. And so because it's based on something outside of myself, which is the Bible, and because I've read the Bible correctly, and I'm being a little sarcastic there because I don't think people always do read it correctly, but the assumption is that everyone does read it correctly, then it doesn't matter exactly how you feel. You just believe it because it's true, and you believe it because of where you want to spend eternity. That, that sounds like an ideology to me. So what does that mean? Uh, that means like it sounds like somebody's um, buying a bill of goods uh, and being indoctrinated into something that where the idea of truth is totally divorced from my experience of it, of that truth. You know, uh, if the proposition is God exists and, and you should, uh, you know, and, and, and you're not supposed to have, if in other words, the Bible is saying God exists, but really there's no contact between you and God and you have no way of knowing about this God. And uh, nothing that you do by way of attempts will be successful to, uh, you know, get you a sense of, of verifying this belief. Then I would say that your your perspective is dead on. But that's not what the text is saying. And I guess I would say two things. Why are you not important in this picture? If God loved you, do you not think that God would want you to understand that? If God loves you and wants to be in relationship, do you not think God wants to give you opportunities and possibilities for validating that truth claim, for seeing that that thing is true? And what might that look like? And I guess what I hear so much is this sort of default of, you know, either it works for you. Well, it's not really about it works for you. If if you have experiences of God's love, good for you. The rest of us kind of don't, and uh, we're just slugging on. And it's not about that. It is completely not about that. And I guess I would say, I would have to ask you, why do you think it's true? I mean, we come back to this, other cultures, why is the Quran not true? Why are, why are, you know, I was, I, I remember this, <laughs> uh, you know, I appreciate this young guy and it's, 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 good. it's valuable that he said this, even though I think he was a, uh, you know, later might think he was a bit of a jackass for doing it. We were talking about this particular is- issue in Islam. And I, I put this question to him. And I said, so why do you think that, um, why can't the, the Islamics say exactly the same thing? The Muslims say exactly the same thing. He said, well, they, he, they can, but we know we're right. No, we don't know. No, in fact, the only reason I do know is because I have these experiences that I can point to these things and say, man, these are life-changing. These are altering. Tell me your story. Tell me your life-altering story. Tell me what Allah is like for you. Help me understand that. But and I'll help you understand mine. But wouldn't there be plenty of people that would say, yeah, I have experienced, I don't know anyone that's Muslim, but I'm assuming there are people that say, yeah, I've, I've experienced Allah or, and, you know, maybe they did a pilgrimage to Mecca and, and all these other things, and it is real for them. It's their right. experience. It's true for them. Right. Right. And there's a lot of content there. And to dismiss that easily, or just to dismiss it at all, I think is very improper. But I'm saying that the only way we cannot, there is no justification for a Christian to claim truth any more than there is for a Muslim, for a Buddhist, or for a Hindu. And the key turning point, and I think this is where John's writings are essential. They will know you by your love. And that love flows out of 
this enormous sense of experiencing and being loved by God, being loved by God in a way that is tangible and real for me. And again, that's not going to be equal and uh, similar for everyone in a Christian community, but that needs to be present within that community and to flow amongst the people in that community. I am convinced that the, you know, in addition to making sense, in addition to there being a, a, a significant truth value in terms of some of the propositions that are put forward in Christianity about, you know, um, relationships only will continue to function with things like generosity, patience, forgiveness, all the virtues that we see espoused in the Christian faith. Now, other religions also, to, to certain extents, espouse those as well. Some may do absolutely identically. Um, you know, and, and then in terms of, um, in, in a lot of regards, there is a, there is a, there's a dialogical relationship between me and God. I pray and things happen. Do things always happen? No. Is it magical? No. But is there a correlation? Yes, there is a correlation. And particularly, I have experiences of being profoundly loved by God. I would not be here. I left Christianity because it did not work, because God was less real and less powerful than the significant forces of evil that were acting in my life, whether through murder uh, or, or something more than manslaughter for sure, uh, whether through uh, sexual abuse, uh, whether through power mongering and spiritual abuse in the church, um, all of these things looking around at all these different indicators. You know, Oz Guinness might say, hey, you know what? All these people got it wrong and God is still there. Right. But you know what? My understanding of God being good is conditional upon God's goodness. Right? It may be that, that, that the, uh, the Greek pantheon is the right way to go. That Zeus really is in charge of everything. But from everything we know about Zeus, even if you believed in Zeus and you... Uh, Zeus really was there. Zeus is not somebody you want to get very close to. You want to stay away from Zeus and stay on Zeus's good side. It's big news if Zeus is there, but it's not good news. The reason it is good news that God, the God of the, the, the Christian uh, Bible, it, it is, is real, is that God is deeply good, and goodness cannot but be experienced to be known as goodness. And, you know, we need to move totally away from these ideas of, oh, you're judging God. Of course I'm judging God. Of course I'm judging God. God calls us, the psalmist calls us, taste and see that the Lord is good. We, of course we are called to make that judgment. You know, and we get into these silly, silly, silly discussions of, you know, you're judging God and you can't do that. No, I can't judge God. Absolutely. I'm not trying to put some absolute yardstick. I'm trying to put my yardstick. That's a relative, pragmatic. And uh, what's the other word I'm looking for? Subjective? Exactly. Yardstick. <laughs> and you know what? Each one of us has those, and each one of us is not only entitled to use those, we must. In order to be who we are, we must. God is calling us to engage. God is calling us to engage with God. God is, is, is wooing us, inviting us, etc. And uh, if we have no sense other than, you know, why do you believe the Bible? Why believe the Bible and not the Quran? Why believe any of these texts at all? And I think somebody who's telling me that, I mean, I, I know I'm, uh, 
I'm throwing a big, big item into the ring here, but um, I, I doubt they have any ground to say it. If you want me to believe the Bible, why do you believe it? Because you were taught to believe it? Because you Because your parents did? Well, you know what? I'm taught differently. And my parents said different things. Because you have a sense that's what you're supposed to do? Well, I have a different sense. Give me something I can sink my teeth into. Give me something real because you think it's true. Well, help me understand that. Well, you know, one of the things I've always said is the, is if the best reason for believing something is true, then the greatest truth for me is to be deeply loved by someone whom I love deeply. That is why our uh, spousal relationships, our child-parent relationships, our sibling relationships, our friendship relationships are so crucially important to us as human beings. It is part of our makeup. To see the direct link between that and God, it's, it's, completely, it's completely similar. You know, there are some distinctions, but they're very deeply related. So would it be fair to kind of sum things up here as truth informs experience and experience informs truth? I think so. But I, and I would probably say that, uh, you know, it's like, it's like I have to have some sort of notional concept of God in order to relate to God. I have to have, um, I, I think, in order to be in relationship with a Christian God, I have to have some idea that this God exists, some idea that this God cares for me, some idea of who and what this God is. I don't need to have some, you know, enormous full-blown theology. I don't need to have studied. But in order for the truth claims particularly the ones that impinge upon me the most, that God loves me, that God is good. For those, for those truth claims, for me to say, yeah, these have a real truth value. To judge their truth value, I weigh up and can only weigh up those truth claims, those particular truth claims. But they're the top priorities, right? Loving God with all my heart. How? Responsively. Because God loved me first. And how do I weigh that up? Through my experience. There is no other way. And of course, we believe in, uh, in Christianity, we talk a lot about testimony. Testimony is important. You know, um, if we look at um, Augustine's coming to uh, Christianity back in uh, the late 4th century, he was reading a biography about how Athanasius came to Christianity. So this whole idea of, Christi- of testimony is important. But yeah, there's an experience that's out there, whether I'm having it and telling you, whether you're having it, whether it's both. And I don't think God's, um, I don't think God's a miser with God's love. I, I don't get that anywhere. God's not interested in God saying, oh, you know, I gave a little bit to Greg. I can't give any to John. So anyways, we could go on, but <laughs> stop there. Okay. <laughs> I really got you going. <laughs> and I'm so torqued up on that subject. <laughs> I <was> just <laughs> seriously, I, that, it makes it makes no sense to me. And uh, I, I think I guess the thing that gets me angry, and I'll just you know just throw this comment in, however we want to use it. The thing that gets me really upset is that I think we are selling people. We're saying be Christian. And Christianity is this kind of uh, small thing that I, I have in a, in a small 
box that I can put on my, my table. When in reality, be Christian. Because Christianity is this vast, enormous thing that will fill all of your experience, will fill all of your life, will fill all of your desires. And I'm not saying that it's not hard, difficult, painful sometimes. I'm not saying you get everything you want. I'm not saying everybody has all the experiences of God they want. But I am saying that we diminish it to such an extent. And then we say to people, it's, 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 uh, the trigger here for me is it reminds me of my childhood. It reminds me, I think, of when I was abused and I got the words, I love you, from the person doing that abuse. And they're in very close proximity. It's the same sort of huge, huge, huge undersell. That ain't love. Well, you know what? That's not God. That picture you're painting of what I need and should be accepting as this great and glorious thing is not great and glorious. It is this idea that does not make sense, that if I was buying a car, I'd never do it. That if I was entering a relationship, I would drop it flat. Why on earth do we accept something in this realm that we would accept nowhere else? That our best uh, common sense and that our uh, most attuned emotions would reject. Throw it out. There's a problem with it. We should not be going down this road, and we should not be portraying God and Christianity like this. And, you know, ultimately, when people, when I hear you say, you know, this doesn't work for me, my thought is, good, I'm glad. And I realize this is a big statement to make as well, but if people have bought into this idea of God, that they don't need to experience God's love. And that's, that's kind of something that's out there. And they might say, oh, I experienced God's love because I sang this hymn and I feel good. Well, maybe and maybe not. You know, and if, you're, if that's all there is for you, if that's, that's what it means, I, I think you've got a fairly shallow and um, unsatisfying and really inaccurate sense of what God's love is about. But we're not supposed to be selling things short, you know, and, and part of it is I think that People have, um, people have allowed themselves to be talked into something for the sake of page 21, not a fan. The biggest choice is going to heaven or going to hell. Christianity is not all about that. It is not about reward and punishment. It is about being in a, the most profound and wonderful love relationship and having that transform everything else you do in all the other relationships that you have. For people that don't know you very well, one thing that comes to me maybe is you said some pretty strong things there. Mm. Would it be fair to say that you're saying them as strongly as you are not to judge them or say, you guys are idiots, you've got it all wrong, but because you're afraid they're missing so much that they could be having? Well, I I think it's... um on the one hand, yeah, I agree with you that, that they're missing so much that they could be having and that, that I think would not only be transformative to them and for them, it would be transformative for others. So because my perspective, the perspective that's chief in my head is coming back to Christianity, my return to Christianity after seven years as a hostile agnostic was an extraordinarily, I mean, I didn't want anything to do with it. It was uh, completely... Uh, unimaginable. The most unimaginable thing I, I, I'll go to my grave and I'll I'll still shake my head and say, uh, I can't believe this has happened. Um, 
So it's not only for the people in the church and that there can be more, but that that more, the more of God that we're missing out on in the church is also what it is that calls people into the church. It is what takes a message that when you're standing outside of it, and this is, this is the thing that, 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 that is extremely troubling for me when I read some of the exegetes and theologians I'm reading, some big Christian academicians, people with big credentials, with you know, prolific publications. My sense is these guys were born and raised Christian and they do not understand what it is like to be outside of this and to not understand it. And in one sense, that's completely logical, right? You don't understand. It's impossible to think about not understanding something you do understand. You really can't do that. But on the other hand, being able to empathize and being able to listen, actually engaging non-Christians in conversation, actually listening, might change the way they do their theology and might change how they apply their exegesis so that what they're saying actually is both, on the one hand, corrective for the church and refocusing on love so that people have that fullness, that more of God that they can and should have. But number two, it's also enlivening, inviting, alluring for those outside, as opposed to, you know, putting out this idea that, hey, this is the greatest thing I've got. And, you know, at me as a non-Christian, I come by and I look at it, sort of tip it up on its side. I'm like, man, it's all rusty underneath. What are, you, what are you talking about? This, this totally doesn't work. This is a nutty idea and you're claiming it's the best thing ever? You know, come on. And I can, I can fully understand why people are not in the church. Thanks for listening to the Untangling Christianity podcast. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode, so leave a comment on iTunes or over at the website, untanglingchristianity.com slash 12 if you'd like to be notified by email when new episodes are released or other news subscribe to our mailing list also available at the website we welcome your questions comments or suggested future discussion topics by email send those to feedback at untanglingchristianity.com music on this podcast is made available by Kevin McLeod over at incompetech.com and is licensed under a creative commons license Thanks to Kevin for his generosity. Support him at his website by going to incompetech.com, I-N-C-O-M-P-E-T-E-C-H.com. Tune in next week for a new episode.